Hi everyone, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our editor David Horvitz and senior analyst Javiv Ratigur. Happy New Year to you both. Hi Amanda. Happy New Year everyone. We have a lot to cover today, including a morning visit to the Temple Mount by National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir. We'll talk about other first steps of the new government, including a new security cabinet. And we'll also hear about ultra-Orthodox demography, and time permitting, we'll learn what the Hebrew Language Academy's Word of the Year is. But first, a short break. You're listening to this podcast. So I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Gentlemen, before we turn to weightier matters, do you know what we're marking today? Tell us, Amanda. (laughs) Wait, no, we have to guess. This this is the best part. This is the quiz portion of the show. Are Saturn and uh, Mars aligned? That was last week. You could see all the planets in the sky, apparently. Uh, I think you need a very good telescope, but I'm sure that's not what Amanda's talking about. Okay, I'll give you a hint. It's our second anniversary of the Daily Briefing podcast. Do you want to hear some numbers? Sure. You mean we've been doing it for two years? Is that we've what you're saying? We've been doing it for two years, and now we're creeping up on three million listens. So what do you say that we try and double wow. that by next year? Go for it. Let's go. So... Today, this morning, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir ascended to the Temple Mount in a visit that is being condemned by the Palestinian Authority's foreign ministry as, quote-unquote, an unprecedented provocation. There were, prior to his visit, several apocalyptic warnings, including from former Prime Minister Yair Lapid. So, David, how do you see this playing out now? Well, the first thing is, uh, he did it... um it's a provocative gesture, but he did it in an unprovocative manner. In other words, he went um, early in the morning um, and was barely noticed at the time. It was a fairly brief visit, and the visit itself passed without incident. There's no suggestion that he broke the quote-unquote status quo by praying. The, you know, by dint of being now uh, a minister in the Israeli government as opposed to a Knesset member or a private citizen, uh, the visit is uh, uh, much more resonant. He apparently um, met with uh, Netanyahu yesterday, who told him, go speak to the heads of the security services and be guided by then. Uh, we're told he actually went and met with the head of the Shin Bet security service. He spoke to key people in the police and so on. And uh, we are told they guided him to believe that there was no overt reason for him not to visit. And therefore, he went ahead. 
Look, he's a very uh, effective politician. Uh, you know, much of what's happened in the last few weeks with the construction of Israel's new coalition has he has managed to make all about him. Uh, he's going to be uh, increasingly popular with the proportion of the Israeli public who thinks that uh, Israel needs to show. Uh, a stronger, um, more forceful position uh, in respect of, uh, of of those who criticized it, criticize it, and certainly in respect of uh, Israel's enemies. Uh, and for people, uh, uh, and I don't know how to quantify them, uh, who think that this is a poke in the eye and is uh, quite possibly going to lead to some uh, uh, new escalation of violence, as has been the case in the past when uh, the Temple Mount has become uh, a particularly inflammatory issue. You know, there'll be people who, who are saying, why didn't Netanyahu stop him? Uh, does Netanyahu really want to uh, discomfort, if not worse, uh, Israel's Arab allies, strain relations with the United States, which has been very wary about what this government might do on the Temple Mount, and so on and so on. Um, you know, the, the visit has has taken place. It passed without any kind of significant incident. The question is, what will happen next? And as you rightly say, Yair Lapid warned yesterday, quite categorically, people will die. Um, uh, I, I heard um, people in uh, Ben Gvir's party saying, if there's a response to this, a violent response to this, then Israel's response to uh, you know any Palestinian violence will be un- without restraint. So there's certainly a potential for um, things to spiral as can be the case with the Temple Mount, we shall see. Okay, right now, the government is set to meet about the 11-member roster for the high-level security cabinet. So how much play does Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu really have in crafting its makeup? I, I know there are several positions that are required by law, and, and what can he do to actually, I don't know, fill his dance card so that it's more supportive crowd? Well, we have a 31-minister coalition, cabinet, depending on whatever terminology you want to use. There are 31 people called minister uh, in the incoming new government. Um, That's an unwieldy body, and it uh, tends to not take significant decisions. Um, Most significant decisions are taken by this so-called inner cabinet or security cabinet, uh, and it's being voted through probably as we speak or very shortly. Uh, we are told it has 11 members, and it seems to to be that Netanyahu was able to select them pretty much at his discretion. Uh, ben Gvir is on that uh, f- is in that forum, that that most significant forum. So is Bezalel Smotrich, the other uh, significant um, far right ministerial um, player in the new government. Uh, you know, the, your your wider question is you know a function of of how you interpret what's been playing out here. Netanyahu, in theory, is incredibly strong. His party is the largest party in the Knesset. It's certainly the largest party in in the government, and yet he has doled out um, substantive powers to more minor players. And, you know, just the Temple Mount incident that we were discussing now has chosen not to um, demonstrably exercise, shall we say, the power that he has. Now, it's argued he has no other coalition without these partners, and therefore he had to give in to lots of their demands. You know, the counter-argument applies as well. They had no other coalition without him. Uh, and uh, and we're not going anywhere in, in government without him, and therefore he could have been much more more you know uncompromising or uh, uh, less generous, shall we say? And you therefore can only draw the conclusion that what's playing out is playing out because that's the way he wants it to play out. Um, in terms of this uh, a security cabinet, uh, the the constellation, if it's as reported, is very convenient for Netanyahu. There are more than enough people who are entirely loyal to him, I would say. And therefore, this forum is unlikely to take decisions that Netanyahu does not want, however they might come to be depicted. You know, he controls this most significant decision-making authority.
Just to take from what David said forward, um, one is that uh, Netanyahu uh, didn't have a choice in giving out a lot of these very influential positions because um, Ben Gvir and Smotrich essentially ran against him. In other words, they ran on a campaign that explicitly, openly, publicly, repeatedly said he's weak on crime, he's weak on uh, Palestinian violence, uh, and, and we won't be weak. And so for Netanyahu to then deny them these positions would um, strengthen what is essentially an anti-Netanyahu, pro-Netanyahu rebellion. In other words, the campaign was, if you want the right kind of Netanyahu and not the weak, simpering sort of Netanyahu, vote for us. And so he had to give them, he felt, these positions. And he believes, um, I, people around him think, and and uh, I susp- and it makes sense for just what we know about him over many years in power, he believes that when the rubber hits the road and the actual daily handling and management of the coalition, he will be able to rein them in. Last week, Ben Gvir said publicly, I'm go- still going to visit the Temple Mount. And it was a very interesting thing for him to say because it suggests that he's responding not to the left, which that's not how he would have phrased the response to the left. He would have said, of course, I'm going to the Temple Mount. It's our holiest site in Judaism and blah, blah, blah. But it suggests that he's saying that to Netanyahu. And he's saying, dear Netanyahu, I understand that you have tried to rein me in. You're worried you want peace with the Saudis. You're worried that this will hurt us on a strategic level. Just so you know, I will. And now we saw this very low-key visit probably is Ben-Gvir signaling to Netanyahu it's going to be okay. And Netanyahu feeling that he does have control. And so this is this, that's not to say is he succeeding, it's to say this is what we need to watch going forward to really understand if he succeeds in what he says he's going to do, in, in reining them in and in running a responsible policy. Yeah, I don't want to belabor the point, but I, but I, I obviously I, I disagree. I, I think Netanyahu um, negotiated this coalition as a supplicant uh, to a an, uh, an radical degree. Uh, obviously, he, this is indeed his only coalition, and he had to give the Smotriks and the Bengvirs some power. Uh, I do not believe that he had to give Bengvir a, a expanded police ministry with uh, unprecedented authority. Uh, I don't think Bengvir would not have joined his coalition otherwise. I don't think he had to give in to every demand by the, by Smotrich, who I know is implacable and I would say um, messianistic in his ideology. I still think Netanyahu uh, negotiated as though he was spectacularly more weak than he is. And I see the Ben Gvir visit to the Temple Mount as the first um, tangible, well, you know, not the first, another tangible indication that Netanyahu assuring the world, don't worry, I've got this. I know these are dangerous provocateurs who have an extremist agenda, but I can control them. Well, I think we're beginning to see if we have any doubt that that is not the case. Okay, we'll get to a short break. The surge in anti-Semitism since the October 7th attacks has changed the Jewish community's relationship with a slew of social and political issues. In the newest episode of The Glue, Jewish Federations of North America President and CEO Eric Fingerhut talks to Congressman Richie Torres, who has proved to be a pro-Israel bridge builder about everything from DEI to social media. Their conversation is fascinating. Listen to it and subscribe to The Glue with Eric Fingerhut wherever you get your podcasts. (music) 
And we're back. Khaviv, according to a report from the Israel Democracy Institute, which used some Central Bureau for, of Statistics data, by the end of the decade, ultra-Orthodox Jews will constitute 16% of the total Israeli population. So that's, of course, a nice piece of data to know. But what does it actually mean for Israel? Yes, um, the Israel Democracy Institute has a report. Um, the Kalkalis Business Journal has had a major series of three reports that took the CBS, the Central Bureau of Statistics data, and OECD data, uh, and Finance Ministry data. And the whole country seems to, or at least the secular part of the half of the, of the country, seems to be intensely debating what a future uh, Haredi not led, but certainly significantly influenced country looks like. And the debate right now is not about religion and it's not about culture war, it's really about economics. Israel is at the bottom of the poverty rank, or I should say the opposite, it's at the top of the poverty rankings of the developed world. The OECD places Israel as the poorest country in the developed world, and a huge amount of that poverty, roughly half of the parts of Israel that are below the poverty line as the OECD measures it, uh, is the 12% of Israeli society that is Haredi. The Haredim are trapped. They are trapped in a cycle of poverty. This data lays bare. The average Haredi household pays about one-sixth as much taxes as the non-Haredi household into the public treasury. That's one out of six. Uh, and they receive massive amounts more from the public treasury, uh, more than a quarter of the total income of the country's Haredi households, of 200,000 Haredi households, about 26% of the total income come from entitlements, welfare spending, yeshiva stipends. That is two and a half times the 11% of total income for non-Haredi Jewish households. Um, and, uh, and per household, they actually get about half as much more. Um, and the reason for this, this society being this massive drain on the public treasury and not paying into that public treasury is is a cultural decision. It's not it's not structural, accidental. It's not something that happened because they're immigrants. It is a cultural decision not to work. Haredi male employment is at about fifty three percent, and it has been stable at fifty three percent for many many years. And that is a potential looming uh, disaster. They're going to stay below the poverty line, and, and as their population grows, by the end of the decade, they're going to be uh, 16% of the Israeli population. By the end of uh, two decades later, they're going to be a third or more of the Israeli population. The average Haredi household is at around six uh, people, uh, whereas the average non-Haredi household is at about three. And so uh, their share in the population is increasing, and they have this cultural decision to favor Torah study over work, to refuse to work, and to have educations that don't allow them to work well. When they go to work, uh, non-Haredi men make 90% more salary than Haredi men. And even among women, uh, where you have huge rates, about 80% of Haredi women do work, they still make a third less than non-Haredi women. And the reason is schooling. This comes out in OECD reports and in the IDI reports. They don't learn English. They don't learn math. They don't learn science. And so when they enter the labor force, they're just not useful in engineering, in high-tech, which is a major engine of the Israeli economy and pays very well. And so poor skills in education, this is the cycle, poor skills, poor education for ideological reasons, uh, mean they get the, that work pays less. And when work pays less, there's less of an incentive 
to work. And when there's less of an incentive to work, you'll fall back on the story of Torah study being significant and important for ideological reasons. And so we, with policy, disincentivize work. The population is growing. It remains poor. Israel has flourished. GDP per capita has doubled since 2007. Salaries have risen 54% just in the last decade. That has not happened in the Haredi community. And so you have this very, very poor community. And, um, and the way out in the OECD reports and in all the reports is better education. In the coalition agreements, as we've already reported, in the coalition agreements, the Haredi parties have actually come forward and demanded a few things that will preserve this cycle of poverty. One of those things is to maintain the ability of Haredi schools to get state funding or to increase the ability to get state funding without seriously engaging with core curriculum, English, math, and the things that would break this cycle of poverty. They want to preserve the system. We have polls of Haredim where we say, do you feel the poverty? What have you given up because of poverty? More than 40% say they give up free time entertainment, uh, taking their families out because of poverty. But 15% say they've given up medical care because they don't feel they have the money to afford medical care. In the Haredi community, they have this debate where they, they have this this political um, debate in which to stand up for education, to stand up for a refusal to secularize as they see it, their education system, is to defend Torah and is to defend the holiness and purity of their community. And so they're locked into this rhetoric that they're having trouble breaking out of. But they also understand, and those quietly off-camera Haredi politicians say, yeah, obviously we need to bring our you know, men Men, male employment up from 50% to 66 to two-thirds or something like that. Obviously, there is this, this middle ground that we have to, this compromise that we have to make. We don't know how to make it. And so we now have a government that is committed, even though Netanyahu knows this is bad for the country, and the Haredi leadership itself knows off-camera that this is bad for the country and for their own community. We have a government that in its policy guidelines is committed to preserving and to strengthening that cycle of poverty. And we have to see uh, if if they themselves can bring themselves to break it, maybe quietly change policies in important ways. Um, but that that is one of the big questions in this government and probably in future governments where Haredim will increasingly play a role. Okay, it sounds like a bit of a sinkhole, which brings us to our final very quick segment. The Hebrew Academy of Language announced its word of the year, bol'an, or sinkhole. And what's interesting is that this word wasn't actually invented by the Academy. It turns out that it was invented in the 1960s by the the people. The Academy's word for sinkhole is actually balua, which is the same root, but in a different kind of uh, iteration of it. And that was invented in the late 1950s. So what is a bol'an in common parlance here in Israel? Usually it's used next to the Dead Sea, all those horrible sinkholes that are uh, pretty much a direct result of the pumping of the Dead Sea water. But lately, why is it more commonly used this year? That Because there have been two, maybe three, sinkholes in Tel Aviv. So bol'an is the word of the year, according to a public vote. Last year it was tirlul, which is lunacy. The year before, matosh, or a, a nose or ear swab. So instead of meshilut or governance, the people of Israel decided that bol'an is the word of the year. David, Chaviv, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda, especially for the educational bit at the end. Excellent. Fascinating. Yeah, I thought that was a perfect segue with Sinkhole. That was really well done. <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye. 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 
Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.